What's up, everybody? You're listening to Salah's Corner with the one and only Salah Muhammad. So again, this will always sound different. Uh, I think I'm still getting used to this. Uh, I'm home recording this intro and outro um, because we are still practicing physical distancing. I saw that on social media the other day about how we need to say it's physical distancing, not social distancing, because we still need to remain socially active with each other, just not physically active with each other. Um, but either way, I bring you a very, uh, important conversation to me because it's something that I struggled with on a regular basis when I was working in corporate spaces and it was struggling my black identity with the corporate workplace identity and how those two in a lot of places bumped heads with each other. And I know a lot of black people go through this, right? We work for these companies, we work for these corporations or, or organizations that either support policies that speak against us and our black skin or we aren't present on a leadership level or management level or any type of structural level to affect how we are perceived and how we are treated within that organization. And that can be incredibly damaging. You know, so I worked in a number of places where I couldn't even grow my facial hair. Um, suit and ties were mandated. It was kind of frowned upon if you didn't have it. Um, and I couldn't even grow my locks out. Finally, I left and was able to do that. But you know, for a very long time, my identity was attached to the organization I worked with because they stripped so much of me away. And I bring you a very important conversation I had with Shy Williams. She's an entrepreneur. She's a former detective. Uh, she's a speaker. And she goes around talking about the importance of um, being proud of your black skin, the importance of our our proper interactions with police to make sure that we are protecting ourselves, protecting our loved ones, and we are in safe care, even when we're traveling with someone else. And I can, you can imagine how that must butt heads with her being a former detective and that kind of transition that she went through in that experience. So we'll bring you that coming up on this conversation. Welcome, Jai. How are you? I'm well. How are you? This episode will be airing way after the Rona. The Rona. Well, I won't. It depends on where we <laughs> at in the Rona. But as of right now, I think we're both free and clear of the Rona. Yeah. Is that what we are officially calling it? Is that what black people yeah. are officially calling I just it? The saw, Rona. <laughs> for real, I just saw a meme about that. <laughs> black. <laughs> the black forces have uh, renamed it to the Rona. That's funny because, like, I don't think there was a like when it comes to stuff like that for black people. There's never really like a consensus. Like, I think I've just been saying it at home. Right, Brie? She's off to the side. Just ignore <laughs> me. But, like, I've just been saying it at home. Call, actually, I've been calling it the uh, Corolla. Corolla. Yeah, Corolla virus. <laughs> anyway, let's introduce you to, to everyone. What do you do? Where are you from? All right. So, my name is Shy Williams. I am originally from Plainfield, New Jersey, mm-hmm. Queen City. And I am a social justice instructor, entrepreneur, author, and, you know, just a person who oh. is, is proud of being black and want to uplift, inspire, educate and empower our our community. I love the T-shirts and, and the, the message of proud black boy, proud black girl. But then when we sat down and met, I got to understand all of these different identities that mm-hmm. you carry with you that came together to produce who you are today. So mm-hmm. let, let's talk a little bit about like. You know, some of that where you, you you didn't just get the idea of writing the this book series, right? Like, right. how did you come to the fruition that you wanted to create this for for children? It really came from my experience and exposure as a detective in Camden. So when I was in Camden, I was the primary domestic violence detective 
which is really SVU, right? So mm-hmm. cover domestic violence, sexual assaults in all juvenile cases. And, you know, from that experience, just interacting with our youth and them like, you know, getting in trouble, running away, not wanting to go to school. I really what an idea came from, right? I, I wanted to be able to create something that our youth can pick up and be able to resonate with. Like when they look when they look into these books, they can see characters that they can mm. relate to, right? Stories that they can actually relate to and characters that they can see, but okay, well, this is a representation of me, right? Because at that point, they grabs their attention, right? Because if they can't relate to it, you know, they're going to start drifting away. So that's really what it came from. And then I just really tied the stories into like my own experience, like the proud black girl, it, the, not to give the story away, but it's talking about a girl who's being joked about, about her com- skin complexion. Yeah. Um, and so that was my experience. Cause I, you know, I went from growing up in an urban community to moving to suburban community where my mother had the opportunity to buy her home. So like both of these stories, even the proud black boy, is really depicted from my own experience, but mainly when I became a detective and saw how, you know, what was going on in our communities, it's like, okay, we, we need something that represents ourselves and that our kids can really be able to relate to and build literacy. Mm. You, you are uh, a detective for, are you still a detective? No, I'm not. Let's let's talk about your professional background a little bit because I think that is that in itself, you know, being a proud black person and mm. being a detective is in itself already as a lot of people see it as a contradiction. Mm-hmm. Let's let learn a little bit more about your professional background though. So, I uh, I was a detective for a little over 6 years. I Started at, at um, Camden County Police Department, Oof. and uh, yeah, I left Camden, and I went on to spend majority of my my um, years in Camden. I was in Camden for about four years. I left Camden, went over to a prosecutor's office, um, still in Jersey, um, and I worked in the prosecutor's office as an undercover narcotics detective. Mm. And I really say that my experience as a detective, as a police officer, is what really drove my my passion to wanting to uplift our community and it really started in Camden and I think it really just flew into fruition when I left Camden but for me in Camden like I'm from Plainfield which is an urban community but even coming down to uh, work in Camden was a culture shock for me and I just couldn't really believe it and and it really hit me like head on at the beginning of my career and I just couldn't understand how is it that we have a eight and a half square mile town with these type of conditions, poverty, right? People um, who are not high, like not receiving adequate education, jobs, right? So it's like, how is this not a national crisis? You know, to to put it into perspective for people, because I'm familiar with Plainfield, and I know a lot of people are familiar with Cam- Camden. It's I would say for for Black people, it's kind of like you know moving from Chestnut Hill to like you know Ninth and Dolphin. Oh, in a I'm sense. not from down around here, so I don't even know that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, listen, I, but for for Philly natives, you know, okay. Chestnut Hill is a very affluent or or at least middle class, yes. I would say, uh, community. And then you know, Ninth and Di- uh, Dolphin is is you know, it is heavily poverty stricken. You know, mm-hmm. so that that is that contrast from Plainfield to Camden. Yeah, and you know what? The other day I was up um, in Plainfield a couple weeks ago, and I was even driving like on Front Street, and I was just like, wow, like. Yeah, you see the poverty, like you see the poverty, you see like the the urban mm-hmm. part of the of the uh, community. But I'm like, okay, it's still clean. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. So you can still see the difference, and that was for me. You know, I saw it differently. This is years later, 
you know, going back and I'm just saying like still having that same, you know, notion and 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 being inquisitive about Camden. How is this not a how is this not a national crisis? Right. And then but you go down to the waterfront and you have these big, you know, high rise buildings where people are getting where businesses, not people, but businesses are getting tax breaks. And you got people within the community struggling, mm. like struggling, you know, blocks away, two blocks away. What what I don't think I asked you this when we first sat down to talk, but what made you want to become a police officer? Honestly, I didn't want to. I originally I'll say that when I went to college, I wanted to become a lawyer mm. and I was I was struggling getting it, getting my, my LSAT scores to where they needed to be. And that's when I said, like, OK, let me go ahead and continue to pursue school. And I went and got my master's, joined the military. And I just so happened to apply. So, okay, right, I want to go to law school, but I need to make some money, <laughs> you know. So right. let me let me apply to, you know, my job. My brother used to always come into my room when I lived with my mother after college, and he was like, "You need to become a cop." Like, dude, and it was like years passed, and I mind you, I'm still, you know, studying for the LSAT, so go, like taking all these courses, and I'm like, "Dang, okay, he's kind of he's been saying this to me for years." So let me try it, and I went out and I applied. Honestly, just to Camden, and I ended up getting the, the getting the job the day that I graduated with my master's. Mm. And so it was actually, and once I once I became a cop, I actually did enjoy it because I, you know, I wasn't, you know, it was urban, so it was like, <laughs> you know, I was around a You're lot serving of serving your community, yeah, You're serving I, the people that look like you. More importantly, yeah. So it wasn't it it didn't for me it didn't um, switch until I left Camden mm. and I saw it differently. But I was around people, and I you know I came down to South Jersey not knowing anybody. And really was able to, you know, I really wanted to um, lean on to the old heads to learn. And I ended up falling in love with it. Honestly, I really did. And I still, I still, I still love the job, like <laughs> the legitimacy of the job when it's done correctly. And I still miss it, but I know that there's more that I can give to my community than just, you know, arresting and serving in a different way, I will say. So what, what was the breaking point for you that when you, when you made that transition, Right. When you started to realize that this was this started, community that you were serving was much different than the dynamic where you originally started. Again, it was just really just like literally just looking in and seeing. But the one of the change that was for me with when I knew I needed to either either it was situational, meaning where I was at within the agency um, that I was at, or it was just something that I just needed to walk away from because mm-hmm. it started to bother me, like really, like I couldn't sleep because I started to see the systematic ways. For me, it's like, okay, well, okay, a person license is suspended, right? And they get pulled over, right? Because they got to go to job. They got to go to work, right? They got to be able to provide for their family. So if they get pulled over with while driving while their license is suspended, that's an additional ticket, which is $500. Mm-hmm. So it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. it started like it starts to tack on, and then you know you have, it's a lot. You know, you, you so you get out of here and you're um, writing tickets for panhandlers. You know, they already don't have any money, yeah. right? You know, you, yeah. in, in Camden they have an area called Tent City, right? And so, you know, you, you go there because a lot of panhandlers are out there. You know, that you know they are already strung out on some type of some type of addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs. And you know, you give them tickets. So for me, I start to see the systematic ways. Like we're giving tickets to these people. One, they live in a tent, right? They don't, you know, they don't, they don't know, you know, when they're going to get their next meal. They don't have a, pl- a warm place to stay. Like you know, they could line up for the shelter, but if they don't make it in time or is at capacity, they're turned, they're turned away. away. Yeah. You know, but we're giving them a ticket. <laughs> 
furthering keeping them in their poverty conditions. Exactly. So it's n- it's no longer a form protecting and serve. It's not. It's more of a you know keeping them in check. Yes, it's a like I like, you know like they try to say or not try but they they. They say that criminal justice and law enforcement is all about maintaining social control, mm. right? So <laughs> social control, like, yeah. and they define what social control is, right? So it's just part of the system, you know, for me. I, I can imagine that would be tough because you, you, it, it sounds like you're, you, you're building this identity, you know, proud and black, but at the same time, you're being challenged to you know, socially control this community who you know isn't even been given an opportunity. Yes, that's it right there. What was, what was, you explained to me what that was like. It was, it was difficult. It was difficult because like, it was difficult because you see it, you see what, what is happening in the community, right? You're responding to calls of service. You're responding to domestic violence happening, sexual assaults happening, drugs, all these type of things that are happening in this small town. And yes, it is like very crime heavy, but I look at it like, okay, why is it crime heavy? Right. You know what I mean? Like, and, and the only the only example that I could really, you know, give for just to paint a picture for people is and I'm not calling, you know, the citizens of Camden or citizens of, of any urban community. I'm not just I'm not describing. Them, I'm just providing an example. Mm-hmm. If you were to put, I don't know, two lions right in in a very small space and you take one piece of porterhouse steak and you throw it in there they're going to destroy each other yeah. just to get to that one yep. small porterhouse steak, right? So for me, I look at it like, okay, well, if we have inadequate education, what does that, what does that result to, right? Can we really get a job that is sustainable, that we could be able to get, a, get ahead and to be able to leave something for our legacy for our, our children, right? Our children's children. Are we able to do that? You know, <laughs> no, right? But those communities that surrounding that urban community, they have adequate education, mm-hmm. right? That they, they can be able to make a sustainable life for them and their future and their generations to follow. So as, as you started to realize and, and come to terms with the, essentially the, the system being broken or, mm-hmm. or, you know, some will argue that the system being designed this way, what, what went through your mind as you, you know, started interacting with different people on the force and, you know, you don't have to throw out any names. You don't have mm-hmm. to shade anybody. But just talk about that experience. Because I, 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 the reason why I ask that is because I've gone through this phase in, in many aspects of my life. Obviously not into the extreme where I'm policing a community mm-hmm. or in charge of the in, uh, law enforcement, quote unquote, of a community that is disenfranchised, that's systemically disadvantaged. But I've definitely worked in organizations where... In order for me to be successful, I have to strip who I am, mm. right? Like in order for me to put support a company policy or in order for me to, you know, fit in, quote unquote, is for me to turn a blind eye to what's happening to, to black people in that organization, to favor or support agendas that don't really support me as an individual. Right. What was that like as you... Because I can imagine that challenge would have been extremely difficult. Extremely difficult. I remember when I left Camden and I was working undercover narcotics. That's when it really hit me because I joined an agency where I was the only black person, male or female. 
and I'm in undercover narcotics. Now, for me, I didn't. It wasn't a red flag, even though people were telling me like, "Well, yeah," and they put you in narcotics because yeah. you're black, and yeah. I'm like, "No, right?" I'm I'm naive, honestly, and I'm looking at it like, well, "No, I have the experience, and I, I did this. I did undercover." And Camden of narcotics prostitution. So it was like for me, I'm like, no, like like <laughs> they see me, like they see me. They don't see the color of my skin. They don't see my gender. They see me. They see that the cases in which I've done, you know, they see my work, and I'm being rewarded for it. Right. But no. And when you know you ask the question like, how was it when you're interacting with you know your colleagues? I realized that they just didn't get it, or maybe they just didn't want to get it because. You know, I actually was told by, I was actually told by someone, it was, it was an attorney, he said to me, you know, your your personality, when I took, when I started to really think for myself and really be able to see the systematic ways, he said to me, your personality is at a 10 and you need to bring it down to a one and mm. be, mm. be grateful that you have a job, like you have a pension. He's like, do you, like, do you understand how much I pay for health coverage? He's like, you you don't pay that much for health coverage. You know, you should be happy. Like, so, and, and what I was explaining to him and, and his response was to me was pretty much, you know, turn a blind eye, you know, turn a deaf ear. And I'm like, well, I can't do that. <laughs> you right, know, like right. I'm having trouble sleeping and it's, it's just not right. right. It's not, it's just simply not right. So for me, I think that a lot of, like and you see it today in the public where, you know, you have police officers who are not informed about the history of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So if in you know, so they're just speaking based off of like where they're currently at within their current situation, within their current agency, but not understanding that there are some bad police officers out there, right? And there are some good ones as well. But there are other police departments that you know does not have policies and procedures like you, or do not, does not have the culture like your agency does. So you can't really speak from the chair in which you're sitting because there's other people within the industry. And this is why we're at where we're at, where we're, you know, requesting police reform. But I really just think that they don't have, they're not, they're not open to having that discussion to really be able to sit down and say, okay, what is the problem and how do we fix it? You know? And just to go back to what you said, because I, I definitely need to come back there. But just to come back to the, that point about, you know, your personality, right? Like you got to mm-hmm. turn your personality down from a from a four to a one like I can I I just imagine you know coming from different corporate environments and seeing the black person deemed as ghetto or loud Mm. or just you know too much and their counterpart a white woman seen as bubbly and charming and Mm -hmm. personable and all of those different things and (laughs) you know that goes with Again, different extremes, but the same idea of stripping you from who stripping you from who you are Mm -hmm. to conform or to ignore or to fit in to their bubble. Yeah. And yes, I couldn't do that because I really I mean, I I put a post up the other day where I am who I am when I walk into every room. Like I'm Mm -hmm. the same person. You know, as I sit here across from you talking to you, I'm the same person if I was going to somewhere else, yeah. regardless of, you know, the the atmosphere, the zip code, the I am who I am. Um, and I think a lot, of, like, I think, like, when you're getting to these type of industries, agencies, they can't accept that, right? They they want, it's like, a, it's called, like, the police personality. Like, mm-hmm. when you're graduating from the police academy and you're going on to your FTO, which is, like, your field training officer process, which could be, like, from six months, and they're teaching you, like, your FTO is teaching you, 
like the culture of that particular police department and they're explaining to you okay like some may say like you know I want you to forget everything that you learned in the police academy. You're like, what? I just spent six months in the police academy. Yeah, right. <laughs> what do you mean, forget it? And you're like, no, I'm going to show you the way of how it <laughs> how it's done. <laughs> right? I'm going to show you the way of how it's done. Uh, so just forget everything that you've learned. So you you know you definitely you definitely get that. You know, just trying to trying to have you remove who you are and put on who they want you to become. That takes strong willpower, though, right? Mm-hmm. Like. It takes strong willpower in it, but it also takes you. It takes the individual to be to have like other resources because ultimately you're going to get to a point where you know this fictional person. They're going to get to a point where it's a breaking point. They either have to conform mm-hmm. or leave. Yes, and not everybody has the ability to just leave. Right, you know. But at the same time, them you know trying to be individuals also can't conform what yeah that's the question it's a, i get what you're saying like you know what are you doing that s- situation and that was me like you know <laughs> i had to i had to leave i kind of was kind of a little bit forced out to leave but <laughs> that's a whole nother story but you know i like i always i always tell people you know you one <laughs> you got to make sure that you have like the right people in your corner you know like you said like for for me when i when i was in camden the old heads, honestly, they they saw they saw something in me, and they like they took me under their wing. God on a truth, like they really took me underneath their wing, and saying like like, and also me asking around as well because I'm like okay, I'm in Camden, <laughs> you know. You hear the stories. I don't care how far. I don't care where you're at. You hear the stories about Camden, New Jersey, mm-hmm. um, and I'm like okay, well, one, I don't know anyone down here, right? So I'm, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm going to line up with you know people who look like me, and just you know really ask them like can you teach me teach me what you know but really like in that type of situation where it's bothering you and you you know you don't want to conform and you can't leave you know you gotta you have to surround your surround yourself with people who are going to be in your corner your support system right because you never one thing that i've learned that you never want to be an army of one some especially like especially in a situation like this dealing with the government dealing with law enforcement you never want to be an army of one because that's difficult right and and they could easily just take you down and i had to learn that the hard way but i have no regrets but you know if you if you're in that type of position where you can't just leave you know i would say build up so that you can because honestly law enforcement you know working in camden put me in a hospital Mm. Right. Definitely put me in hospital. It was a very stressful, stressful job. It's a very stressful job. Uh, And at that point, I realized that I I needed I needed to do something. I hadn't I needed to really put myself first and be selfish. Right. And there's a there's a certain part where you can be healthy, selfish. Right. Selfish is such a negative connotation. But you can be healthy, selfish because, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup. So I just say just be strategic about, you know, your moves. Let's go back a little bit to you talking about our expectations and or not expectations, but how we we view, you know, criminal justice, especially mm-hmm. in the, through the lens of policing or interacting with with black people. What I I, I have my own beliefs. I, I think the whole system is trash. I think it's it was designed to to put us in our place mm-hmm. or, or how people view our place and. Every policy that has been in place since, whether intentional or unintentional, the result is that, mm-hmm. right? Like 
policing our communities in a certain way that punishes us instead of finding out the whys and the, the, the reasons why we don't have resources or the reason that puts people in predicaments where they feel like they have no choice but to either turn to a life of crime, to drugs. theft or drugs or whatever, mm-hmm. and then just punishing them for the end result of a system that has put them in that place. Truly what agree. is your take on how we either change, reform, or I know that's a broad-ass question, but <laughs> what's your take on how the system needs to be tackled? I think the system needs to be completely dismantled and rebuilt because when these laws were created, you know, they weren't created with us in with with, with us in mind, mm-hmm. right? So we already <laughs> are behind, right? We already don't have a leverage up um, or the playing field is not level. Um, it's probably better to say. So for me, I, I and also like, you know, these laws are, you know, they're, they're from our forefathers, right? Or their forefathers, shall I say, right? So, you know, so, so much has changed, right? The world has evolved. Yesterday is not the same as today. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to change with that. And, you know, like I was like, I, I still watch like first 48. I still have the itch for it. Right. And I remember watching one of the cases where, you know, these two, these two, I think they were juveniles. They robbed this, this guy who was out vending sne- on a sneaker store. Like he has sneakers and jewelry and jerseys up and they robbed him. But he had lookouts for him. And one of his lookouts killed one of the robbers out of self-defense. So the other robber who didn't get killed, he ran off. But when they found him, they charged him with murder because there's it's like a felony charge. So when like when you're doing when you're committing a crime of felony, which is robbery and there's murder, that's in murder, like a murder happens. As even, a result of that crime, as a result of that you crime, you are charged right. even though you never pull the trigger. Right. Right. It's kind of like the Nate. The, 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 uh, yes. Yep. yep. Nate so, Woods. Yes. Yep. So, again, is that fair? No. I never pulled a trigger. Right. Right. So, you know, that's just one example of, you know, why I, I truly think that the criminal justice system um, needs to be completely dismantled, torn down and rebuilt. What are some of the things, you know, that should be considered? Let, let's say tomorrow. Right. Like, you know, coronavirus got all the people that's against criminal justice reform <laughs> i'm not wishful thinking to be fair i am not wishful thinking but i'm saying i'm just let's say you know let's say that tomorrow is a new day mm-hmm. and criminal justice reform is now a thing right like we you know our old system is scrapped the new system in place what are some of the things that needs to be considered as we move towards this new system because i think it's easy i and not saying that like what are how would the new system look because i think even that is a trial and error type of thing Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm, i do think one of the things that i i I look at in our system today is there's no accountability Mm -hmm. what would be something that what would be an ask for you to say this is something that we need to consider as we move to a new era of criminal justice reform so, yes, d- definitely a loaded question. I would say a few things that we need to consider is like reparation. I think we're going about reparation the wrong way. You know, really ask the question, like you said earlier, why are these things happening? Why is crime up? You know, why is robbery up? Why is theft up? And really try to get it from the grassroots level, right? And I think that's what reparation is all about. So if you're having 
if you're having a high crime rate as far as burglary is concerned and theft, okay, well, why are they robbing, right? Why are they stealing? How can we fix it? You know, is it is it employment issue? Is it is it economics? You know, what is it, right? Because I've learned through police work that people rob because they don't have, mm-hmm. right? Or or they're jealous of what someone else Not because has. I love criming all day and all night. Yeah, not because right. I just want to go out here... <laughs> You know, and rob somebody, you know, they're robbing, you know, to be honest, some people rob because they need to take they need to have food for their family. Mm -hmm. Right. Or theft. That's more like theft. Right. People still not that it excuses, not an excuse, but this is reality. You know, it's definitely not an excuse. This is reality. So, you know, to ask these questions. Right. And some people who are these policymakers, they're not they're not looking at it from that lens. They're looking at it like, oh, well, you committed a crime. You're a criminal. Right. And it's like, okay, well, why did they commit a crime? Mm. You know, and, you know, you you have people who are in these urban communities that are making minimum wage. Right. And it's like when you I did the math one time a couple of years ago, so I don't even know if minimum wage is still that amount. But when I did it, this was probably about a, a year and a half ago, a minimum wage a year um, comes out to be like it was like 18, a little over 18,000. Yep. You're right. So it's like, really? <laughs> Right. And, and, you know, the cost of living is going up. Mm -hmm. So this is why people are, you know, doing what they're doing when they don't when they have inadequate education, they can't get a really good job. So I think reparations is definitely one thing that we need to look at with with reform and then asking ourselves, why are people committing these crimes and how can we really tackle it? And just given opportunities. Right. Like it's even like with like people who are incarcerated and they get released and they can't find a job. Right. And they just they go to what's they and they put out they they actually have made the attempt to go out and find a job. And they I, get turned down because they get of turned background down. checks. Right. They get turned down for yep. background checks or, you know, they start the job and then the background check finally comes back and down they're terminated. Mm-hmm. Right. So now, you know, when they're filling out a next application, they don't have that long period of time actually of time allotted on a job, right? They're going from job to job to job. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, well, you can't even keep a job. Why would I want to hire you? You know? So it's things of that nature. Um, just really really looking at it from the grassroots level and stop looking at people as just criminals. Some of it, you know, it comes from like people not wanting to get help, right? And shamed to be exposing themselves that okay, like I need help or that I suffer from something some for something. So I really think, you know, with our criminal justice system, like if if we are going to punish people, we really have to look at the grassroots level of reparation so that this way it's not reoccurring. Like we're actually looking towards like mental health and opportunities, right, to be able to change it around as opposed to, you know, putting a Band-Aid on it, kind of like the First Step Act, which that's really what it is. It's, it's all about it's, it's all about good behavior as opposed to really reparation. We we're going to have to to dive into a whole new conversation about criminal justice because you just scratched on a number of topics that like my mind is is racing. But we're running a a little short on time. But I want to get to what you're doing today and uh, proud black boy and proud black girl. Yeah. So I am the owner of Black Glorification Inc. Mm. It is a clothing apparel, a conscious brand. And we have um, two books that I wrote, uh, Proud Black Girl, Proud Black Boy, and they're children books. I mean, it's just inspiring our youth to love who they are. And when they look into when they look in the mirror to love what they see. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Ariana. Where, yep. Yeah. So I just sent some. I actually got collaborated with a few other authors and I sent her over some apparel and nice. a book. So that's what it's all about. You know, it's like seeing that really brought me to tears. But 
that's part of black glorification and we have apparel that you know people could put on without even having to open their mouth and and, and it displays them being a proud black girl um, a proud black boy as well and then I'm also a social justice instructor and I go around to schools and I teach the youth about domestic violence sexual assaults um, and I just love what I do that's uh, dope thanks that's that's really dope that's definitely something that's needed in our community for sure especially not just you know the advocacy or around educating our, our youth on, you know, how we interact with e- each other, but then also just being proud of the skin that you're in. Like exactly. there's there's too much of of shaming each other, especially when it comes to the, uh, interacting with on social media, and we just we don't you know we don't treat each other the best way usually. So right. just be be proud of who you are as an individual, and mm-hmm. even if you got room to grow, that's okay. Yeah, that's dope. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. That's dope. Where can we find all your content? We bought some, uh, my wife and I, we bought some, uh, yeah, some stuff off Thank you for the support. Here. Appreciate yeah, y'all. It was dope. You. I loved it. <laughs> but where can, we, where can anyone listening and out there, where can we find all your products? Um, on Instagram and Twitter, you can find me at, at I am Shy Williams. And there I do weekly postings of just policies and procedures, how to interact with the police. Black Glorification, you can find us at Instagram at, at Black Glorification on Instagram and Facebook. Our website is www.blackglorification.com. Dope, dope. Shy Williams, thank you so, so much. We appreciate you. Appreciate you. This was great. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank Shy Williams for joining me a few weeks ago on the podcast. And thank you to my listeners for always tuning in. Um, Please don't forget to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It's how this platform feels your support. It's how we reach a wider audience. Um, and also, I just want to put out something that just uh, broke in the last day or two, and that's the, the Pennsylvania House and Senate has now passed a bill that is calling for certain businesses across the state to reopen if they follow uh, safe distancing guidelines. And I think this is absolutely uh, catastrophic for a lot of uh, poor families, for a lot of other industries that are going to try to, to use this as an opportunity to force their employees to come to work um, when they don't have uh, proper testing in place, when we can't contact trace, meaning that if you have been confirmed to have uh, COVID-19, that we can trace who you have been in contact with so we can see if those individuals have also been infected. This is really a dangerous time to be considering specific dates and businesses that can be reopened. Businesses can be brought back to life um, when this is all said and done. Uh, people's lives cannot. And I think we're gambling way too much just for the sake of, of, of some money. Um, you know, people are really concerned with how they're they're surviving out here and the only thing that these legislators seem to think is as well how can we you know bring more money in how can we you know get places back up and running when we're still trying to figure out who is sick and dying and this this is a really morbid time to be having this conversation but it's one we've had on different levels for a number of years particularly around black spaces is it's sacrifice of life versus the sacrifice of somebody making a dollar um so we have a petition up on our website you can go to it right now by visiting salascorner.com slash campaigns 
there are six steps that the CDC, the World Health Organization, and you know other professionals are saying needs to be done before anyone considers reopening businesses. And we want the governor to do those. On top of that list is making sure that we have testing under control. Number two on that list is making sure that we have contact tracing. We know who has coronavirus and we know who they may have spread it to. If we don't have those two things under control, we should not be considering reopening businesses. So I hope you can sign that petition. I hope we can get this to Governor Tom Wolf. And I hope that everyone stays safe out there. Again, uh, if you have any questions, you can email me at realtalk at And until next time, peace y'all.